I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with top scholars working in the field. Uh, with us today is uh, Dr. Christian Ulrichsen. He's a fellow for the Middle East at the Baker Institute for Public Policy at Rice University and the author of a remarkable number of recent books, including Insecure Gulf, and Qatar and the Arab Spring, both published by Hearst, uh, The Gulf States in the International Political Economy, published by Paul Gray McMillan, and most recently, The United Arab Emirates, Power, Politics, and Policymaking, uh, published by Rutledge. Uh, Kristen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. So this, this series of books that, uh, that you've written on Qatar and its foreign policy, on the UAE and its foreign policy, and on security politics in the Gulf, uh, you're almost uh, you know, genetically engineered to comment on the crisis between Qatar and United Arab Emirates over questions of security. So why don't you tell us just a little bit, uh, we're three and a half, four months into this crisis, um, what do you think really drove uh, this crisis which erupted in June, and where do you think it's going? Well, thank you for having me. I think that this crisis has a combination of short and much longer-term triggers. Clearly, this doesn't go back just to 2011, to the Arab Spring, and to the very different policy responses that Qatar and the UAE followed to the uprisings. It doesn't even go back to 1995 with a takeover of power by Emir Hamad, which many in Saudi Arabia and the UAE have said we want to kind of reset the whole post-1995 settlement. It goes back in many ways to the late 1980s, early 1990s, when Qatar and its young heir apparent at the time, Sheikh Hamad, who became the Emir, really began to try to escape from the Saudi shadow realizing, I think, that as a very small country in a volatile part of the world, Qatar was vulnerable to being overshadowed politically, economically, and increasingly also in a security sense. And this was, even, this was even before uh, he became the emir. So in 1992 and 1993, you had border skirmishes on the Saudi-Qatari border, which at the time when Sheikh Hamad was becoming more visible and more involved in day-to-day policy-making was, I think, very much of a wake-up call of the need to develop these partnerships with people around the world and countries around the world that will give you options, the lesson being the invasion of Kuwait in 1990 and the fact that Kuwait had something of value to the international community, which very quickly mobilized to liberate Kuwait. The lesson for the similarly small Qatari state was not lost. So you began to see Sheikh Hamad and the foreign minister from 1992, Hamad bin Jassim al-Thani, HBJ, really becoming much more prominent in building up Qatar's liquefied natural gas capabilities, using natural gas to create long-term linkages with partners around the world, and then utilizing those revenues to become more of an assertive actor in regional and foreign policy. Then, of course, in 2010, Qatar wins the rights to the World Cup in 2022. Qatar's self-confidence is at its peak in December 2010. Two weeks before Mohamed Bouazizi set himself on fire, Qatar had won the rights to the World Cup. So by the time we have the Arab Spring beginning, the Qataris probably thought they could do anything, providing they threw enough resources at it. So that's where we see the breakout moment for Al Jazeera, for Qatar's policies towards Islamism feeling much more comfortable with the pace and direction of change.
Let's let's go back a little bit to this um, the development of the natural gas and how that actually transforms Qatar. Um, so, what exact what exactly does this do in terms of its regional profile and in terms of the way Qatar itself is is organized politically at home? Well, of course, there was a discrepancy between political change and economic change. Clearly, you have political change in 1995 when Hamad takes power and formalizes what had already been his role in day-to-day policymaking in any case. The Saudis were clearly not happy at the change. There was a counter-coup attempt in February 1996 to try to restore Khalifa to the throne. And again, that became a flashpoint in subsequent relations between the Saudis and the Qataris. Hamad as emir wanted to show he was different. One of the ways he did so was the creation of Al Jazeera. And of course, Al Jazeera then begins to create all sorts of regional tensions with its other Arab neighbors through its coverage of Arab states' domestic political affairs, leading to a five-year stint in 2002-2007 when the Saudis recall their ambassador. We should recall this now, that in 2002 the Saudis withdrew their ambassador. It took five years for him to return, and largely because of the Qataris giving airtime on Al Jazeera to Saudi dissidents. So if Qatar was primarily motivated, if, if uh, Hamid bin Jassim and the Emir at the time were primarily motivated by feeling threatened by, by their vulnerable status, why choose the route of antagonizing your powerful neighbors and generating all of these diplomatic problems? It seems like an odd strategy for a country that's feeling insecure. Well, I think you're right. I think they realized that they had to ensure that they had partners around the world who they could rely on and do so in the most important way through energy security. But then also the fact that if Saudi were to really have domestic instability, you would need those external partnerships more so than your neighboring or regional ones as well. And again, comparing and contrasting the aging leadership both in Saudi Arabia, but also in Egypt and other parts of the Arab world, with the fact that the kind of technological change offered Qatar a space in which they could move. They felt, I believe, that there was almost like a vacuum of leadership Mm -hmm. beginning to emerge in the Arab world after the 1990s, with Egypt looking inwards under Mubarak, with the Saudi leadership aging, of course, King Fahad being Mm -hmm. incapacitated, and then Abdullah taking power at the age of 80. And they felt this was a way they could actually begin to try to spread their own networks of influence and leverage in ways that they could begin to actually make more of an impact in soft power, thinking that the way that power was becoming increasingly diffuse allowed them an opportunity to overcome their territorial constraints. The fact that they are, after all, a tiny state, but clearly with a lot of leverage, it can amplify their message. And you have Al Jazeera. They were hosting an enormous number of international conferences. Uh, the rapid transformation of, of the country. Just and the physically. population trebles in size between 2000 and 2015. I mean, the infrastructure is being accelerated in terms mm-hmm. of its national development, all geared towards, in a very different model from Dubai, not for the mass tourism, mass market model, mm-hmm. but putting Qatar on the map for elites for people who wanted to host high-end conferences or for international mediation. And Qatar's 2003 constitution actually has, as one of its constitutional objectives, 
the mediation of international disputes, again playing a role on the international stage that they felt they could try to do. Which, which of course then also goes against the Saudi idea that they should be the ones mediating all of these issues, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, Somalia, well, Palestine. Yemen. In Yemen in 2007, 2008, mm -hmm. the Qataris tried to get involved in the dispute between the Houthis and the Yemeni government led by Ali Abdullah Saleh at the time. And I think they were very, they were, you know, the Saudis took this as a, as, a, as a move against Saudi Arabia's natural mm -hmm. um, sphere of influence. And the Qataris were told, I think, in no uncertain terms, to back away from Yemen. The same thing with the Palestine issue. And there were, the Qataris were trying to engineer a, a reconciliation, and then the Saudis stepped in and brokered the Mecca Agreement in 2007, which was very short-lived. But still, again, the Saudis moving in to, I think, ward off any Qatari attempt to get too close to a area the Saudis felt they should be more involved in rather than the Qataris. Now let's switch to the other side of the conflict then. So the UAE has had a similar type of trajectory, going from a fairly kind of insular and economically focused uh, small state to becoming extraordinarily uh, active in regional diplomacy and, uh, and, and involved in the politics after the Arab Spring. Um, so what happened in the UAE? How did... You've told us the story of how Qatar became this. What about, what about uh, the Emirates? Well, Qatar and the UAE should show any student or scholar of Gulf politics that there's no one-size-fits-all policy and that you have on the outward appearance, you have two very similar states, but have followed almost diametrically opposed policies. So looking at things through the prism of rentier states, for example, or just a simple uh, importance of energy to the economic uh, kind of relationship misses so much underneath the surface. The UAE begins to go undergo a generational change in the 1990s and 2000s, as Sheikh Zayed aged and then passed away, as you have the rise to power both of Mohammed bin Rashid versus Crown Prince of Dubai and then his ruler of Dubai after 2006, and then the rise to power of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed in Abu Dhabi in the 2000s. So there again you have a new generation really accelerating economic development in the mm -hmm. UAE. It took the 2009 financial crash in Dubai and the impact of that for Abu Dhabi to really extend its authority across the Federation, the fact that they had to bail out Dubai in 2009. Until that point, Dubai and Abu Dhabi followed very different trajectories on key issues, including how to whether or not to do relationships economically with Iran. Mm -hmm. At the very time that Abu Dhabi was trying to negotiate with the Bush administration and with Congress for a one-two-three nuclear agreement, you had Dubai being one of the major loopholes in uh, sanctions evasion with Iran. So after 2009, you see a much more centrally Abu Dhabi-controlled UAE beginning to emerge. And then after 2010, you see a much more security-focused UAE as well. Islamism in the UAE had always been quite strong relatively to the, in relative terms, to the rest of the Federation in Ras al-Khaimah, up in the north. I don't think we spotted the significance at the time, but in October 2010, the ruler of Ras al-Khaimah, who was 92 years old, had been in power since 1948, died. After Sheikh Zayed's death, he was the last of the rulers from the Federation's creation still alive, and he was treated with great seniority and deference. 
So his passing removed the protection that he had given or that his family had been able to give to many of the Islamists who had been strong in Ras al-Khaimah, which meant that in February, March 2011, you have the Arab Spring and you have the petition for political reform in the UAE signed by many of the Islamists. They suddenly had nowhere to hide when Abu Dhabi decided to engineer a crackdown on Islamist opposition figures. There was no one who was able to stand up and say, this is not, and we're going to protect you. So just at the moment of greatest um, move of the Islamists to try and actually begin to talk about political change, you have the loss of their protector. Qatar's assertive role in trying to steer the transitions in Egypt and elsewhere in Syria, Yemen, North Africa, I think to some extent steered the Emirates in the opposite direction. We saw that in Libya very quickly where the UAE begins to counter Qatar by backing different groups of militias and laying a lot of the seeds mm -hmm. for the subsequent splits that have torn Libya apart. Of course, we saw in Egypt in 2013, as soon as Mursi was toppled, you see the Emiratis and the Saudis stepping in with even more money in transfers and in budget support than the Qataris had given to the Muslim Brotherhood. Emir Tamim came to power on June 25, 2013. Eight days later, Mohammed Mursi was toppled. Tamim's entire time as Emir has been spent in dealing with the aftermath and with a fallout from Qatar's big bets on the Arab Spring, bets that may have made sense in 2011, but had gone badly wrong, picking the wrong horse by 2013. And the UAE, I think, especially in Abu Dhabi, was determined not to allow Qatar to be once again in a position where they could try and steer a policy in such a dangerous way if you're an Emirati who mm. thinks that Islamism is the biggest single threat to regional stability. And so one way of reading this uh, is that, you know, Qatar became uh, overextended. They were extremely active and a lot of their proxies or friends were winning in the early Arab Spring. And then it all came crashing down in 2013. And the Emirates are now seemingly on a similar type of trajectory where their allies and, and their clients seem to be in control, or at least in a strong position, uh, in, in many of these countries. Uh, does it, do you think that this leads then to a similar type of crash, or does it look like they're establishing some kind of more durable set of regional alliances and, and institutions? Well, I think, first of all, we need to remember that Qatar is, after all, a very small state. You have, at the most, 300,000, probably fewer, Qatari citizens. Qatar's diplomatic and professional capacity to take on issues of the magnitude, for example, of post-conflict Libya was out of all proportion to what they were trying to do. So you see the Qataris trying to work through proxies with groups, as in Syria, for example, that may have been based in Doha before the uprisings or to whom they were introduced. But of course, working through proxies is no substitute. You begin to lose control, and you don't necessarily have any influence over what happens on the ground. So Qatar's reach, I think, was all, always very limited. Once you have the initial regime change, it's mm -hmm. much more difficult to then focus on, on actually changing things on the ground. The Emirates, on the other hand, especially in Libya, uh, are different in one way with Khalifa Haftar. They're not alone. 
This is not just the UAE, just as it was just Qatar in 2011. The UAE is now working with Egypt, with Russia. Of course, in Yemen, they're working with Saudi Arabia, with the coalition, albeit in, with some tension from time to time. So the UAE is working with other states and partners who share a broader strategic objective, whereas the Qataris were very much going it alone, I think, which amplified their own weakness of uh, professional capacity, whereas the UAE, I think, has perhaps quite cleverly chosen to magnify their um, potential by working with partners. And we see that where in Libya today there's almost no Qatari kind of involvement on the ground, whereas, of course, with Haftar, the, uh, the UAE has really established one of the most powerful facts of the new Libya, which is increasingly difficult for the international community to ignore. So this all very nicely sets the stage then. Uh, you know, we, you're seeing the evolution of the UAE and Qatar, and then you get to uh, 2017 and this remarkable crisis, which is uh, torn apart the Gulf Cooperation Council. So, you know, so yes, the conflict did not begin in June, and it didn't begin even necessarily in 2011, mm. but what do you think did happen? in this summer that led Saudi Arabia and the UAE to make this quite yeah. extraordinary offensive against one of the members of the GCC? Well, this happened in 2014 as well. So in, in November 2013, King Abdullah summoned Tamim to Riyadh and gave him an ultimatum basically to change and to stop interfering, in his view, in domestic affairs of other member states of the GCC. And the catalyst for that I think, was media reports that after the massacre at Rabia Square in Cairo, Egyptian members of the Muslim Brotherhood seemed to be going to Doha to regroup and to think about what they would do next. And this was taken as evidence in Saudi Arabia and in the UAE that Qatar under Tamim was not necessarily going to change to the extent that they had hoped when Tamim had taken over. Abdullah in Riyadh gave Tamim three months to comply. In March 2014, the Saudis, Emiratis, and Bahrainis judged that after those three months, Qatar had not complied, and so they withdrew their ambassadors. And it took eight months until November 2014 for that to be resolved. The Emir of Kuwait, as he has done this time as well, tried to mediate. Qatar made various concessions. One of the um, things that really angered the Emiratis was the discovery that a number of Emirati Islamists who had escaped from Cat from the UAE had made their way to Qatar. Well, Qatar gave them a week to leave in April 2014, so there was a concession there. The Qataris requested some of the Muslim Brotherhood figures to relocate to Turkey in September 2014. And then in November, the Saudis brokered the Riyadh Agreement which, of course, we've seen raised in the current mm -hmm. crisis in July when the Saudis then claimed that the paper wasn't worth, the ink, the ink wasn't worth the paper it was written on because the, they claimed the, the Qataris had not mm -hmm. abided by it. So we've been here before. I, like I think many other people, was taken quite by surprise when this whole crisis erupted again. I had thought that the Qatari decision in September 2015 to send a 1,000 troops to Yemen signified the return of Qatar to the GCC fold. So I was taken by surprise. Clearly, if you're looking at timing, you had President Trump visiting Riyadh 
on May 21st. You had the hack of, or the alleged hack of the Qatar News Agency on May 23rd. So people have posited that there may have been a linkage there. The president himself alluded to a linkage in his tweets on the second day of the crisis when he suggested that these issues had been discussed in Riyadh and it was a welcome decision for the Saudis and Emiratis to make that move. So the president himself seemed to draw a link between what may or may not have been said behind closed doors in Riyadh and the subsequent Saudi Emirati move on Qatar in June. We had a two-week period after May 23rd before the formal measures on the 5th of June where you had a, a media campaign of increasing intensity in Saudi and Emirati media casting Qatar in all manner of negative terms of a, a friend to all number of destabilizing groups across the Middle East and that campaign may have been designed to lob in a few hand grenades into the Beltway echo chamber so that when decisions were taken, people would think, who might otherwise not so much, not know so much about Qatar, might just think, well, I've heard a lot about it recently. This does sound like a troublesome little country that needs to be told it's got to change. But there didn't really seem to be any immediate proximate cause, any right. particular Qatari policy or anything which triggered it. No, there wasn't. I mean, nothing I can see. And in that case, we have to think about what might be underlying triggers. One, perhaps, is that with the administration taking office in January, with the Trump administration, the Emiratis and Saudis felt that a new administration was in power, which had policies towards Islamism and Iran, which dovetailed very closely with the Saudi and Emirati position. They may not have escaped notice that, for example, the head of the CIA, like Pompeo, was one of the signatories of the House bill in 2015 that would have outlawed or designated the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization. I think, to some extent, people in Riyadh and in Abu Dhabi felt that with the administration in the White House that there was an opportunity to make regional moves that might not otherwise succeed were a different administration in the White House. So clearly the the, the campaign against Qatar has not gone as planned. Uh, there, there, there's been no quick victory. It seems to be a long, drawn-out uh, uh, thing now. So what does this mean for the Gulf, for the, for the Gulf Cooperation Council, for, for regional politics? Well, I think we can draw some parallels with the Yemen campaign where you saw at the beginning of the campaign a kind of shock and awe, let's go in hard. And then once that initial move did not produce a capitulation, we've seen a struggle to think about what might happen next. And I think we're seeing that happening in Qatar as we saw that begin to happen in Yemen. And I think until there's a way in which all parties can save face and withdraw with honor, this is going to continue. I think it was made clear, probably on a probably on a kind of indirect manner, that formal escalation was off the table. I suspect that some of the more optimistic assessments in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi might have hoped that the U.S. government would pick a choice, and of course that didn't happen. 
in part perhaps because of the pushback from parts of the State Department or the Department of Defense by principals who were much more cognizant of Qatar's strategic and commercial value as a U.S. partner. Particularly as the major airbase for the war against ISIS and, think, and Afghanistan. And I think also the fact that they were, you had the signing of the agreement for Qatar to buy U.S. warplanes. Even though it was negotiated under the Obama administration, the fact that it was signed just a week into the crisis was a signal, mm -hmm. at least from, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the Department of Defense, that this was not going to go as far as maybe some of the protagonists had hoped. I think in the absence of formal measures, and we saw the 13 conditions to Qatar, we saw even though it was an ultimatum, nothing happened after the ultimatum. We saw the subsequent watering down to six principles. We saw a meeting of the anti-Qatar quartet in July that again did not follow through with any um, subsequent action. I think we've seen that formal measures are off the table, but that's been offset by the use of informal measures and it's those informal measures, the kind of media campaign, the campaign that has dislocated mm -hmm. Gulf citizens, that is now even perhaps m trying to identify alternative ruling family branches. This is what's doing a lot of the enduring damage to the fabric of Gulf society. This is precisely the kind of informal, intangible damage that will be the hardest to repair. And from a GCC point of view, the fact that the GCC as an institution has been almost entirely absent from the debate, none of the initial grievances were done through GCC channels. The mediation was from the Emir of Kuwait and from Secretary of State Tillerson. Again, where was the GCC in this? Has done, I think, great damage to the future of the GCC as a viable institution. Why would a Qatari leadership be willing to trust in a GCC which was unable or unwilling to prevent three of its members from turning against a fourth. What implications would this have for Kuwait and for Oman, both of whom have tried to balance relationships both between Qatar and the anti-Qatar group and of course also with Iran. Let's not forget that in January, February this year, the Kuwaitis and Omanis tried to reach out to the Iranian government and to identify a potentially a potential route to de-escalate Iran GCC relations. Both Kuwait and Oman will at some point go through a succession over the next decade. We don't know when, of course. And maybe thinking, well, will there be similar pressure to follow a particular course of action? So I think the GCC is fractured and the intangible nature of so much of the fight now is going to make it very difficult for these wounds to heal, if at all they can. No, that's really, really interesting. Uh, one last thing, just really quickly. Um, the uh, I, I'm very impressed with how tirelessly uh, you try and engage on Twitter to try and point out uh, kind of many of the obvious falsehoods and um, exaggerations which have come to dominate uh, Gulf Twitter. Do you think it matters? I mean, as a form of scholarly engagement, do you think that it makes any positive difference? Or are we sim when we engage on these things, are we simply you know, getting caught up into the negative flow? Well, I think that the, some of the most egregious falsehoods 
will be on all sides, not on any one side, will be apparent to anyone who has a specialist or scholarly knowledge. But that's not who they're aimed at. I think what we're seeing is a battle for the heart and mind of the Beltway on both sides. And we see the Qataris now really ramping up their own attempts to um, engage PR companies and other forms of influence um, making, realizing they had a, they were kind of moving from a, a very, uh, they were moving from a starting position that was very far behind. So these falsehoods, these sort of manipulations of, of facts are not necessarily engaged to people who are already specialists, but they are engaged, I think, at officials or policy people who may only have a passing knowledge of Qatar, but who are now in positions of responsibility or potentially could engage in, in, in decision-making. And so I think they're the people that are being aimed at and are being targeted, again, on all sides. So it, so it makes sense to try and point and out to people who wouldn't otherwise know that something is obviously and silly. If I may say, I mean, this is almost symptomatic of the times in which we live, this whole episode began with a hack in May, you could almost call it one of the first crises of the alternative facts era, one of the first international crises of this era in which we now realize that the dividing line between fact and fiction is increasingly blurred. And whereas a lot of the fake news that we were thinking about in the US context in the election in 2016 was obviously fake, the genius of a hack was that it was something that a lot of people thought, well, Tamim could easily have said it, because it's not a million miles away from Qatar's position. So we are seeing a much more sophisticated blending of information and of misinformation on all sides in ways in which we are going to, I think, increasingly find it hard to discern what's real and what's not. So anything I think anyone can do to point out what happened and what may have happened or may not have happened is probably welcome in any direction. All right. Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with uh, Kristen Ulrichsen uh, from Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy, um, author of the new book, uh, The UAE, Power, Politi Power, Politics, and Policymaking. Uh, Kristen, thanks for joining us. No, thank you.